You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 172 is Mark Stewart, the singer and mad scientist behind the pop group. You're right now hearing She Is Beyond Good and Evil from their 1979 debut album, Why, that is the letter Y. He went solo in 1983 after two pop group albums and has released nine records on his own, plus two pop group reunion albums and some other things. His latest album, Versus, features a lot of collaborations. We'll discuss Rage of Angels, which is a collaboration with Front 242. Then we're going to look back to the first of the pop group reunion albums, Citizen Zombie 2015, to the song Age of Miracles. And then back to his first solo album, Learning to Cope with Cowardice, from 1983, attributed to Mark Stewart and the Mafia. The song is Liberty City. We'll conclude by listening to another one of those new collaborations, Cast No Shadow, by Mark Stewart, Stephen Molander from Cabaret Voltaire, and Eric Random, mixed by a fellow named Leather Strip. For more information, see markstuartmusic.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support what I'm doing and look at the notes that I use for these episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will play it a little of She Is Beyond Good and Evil by the pop group from Y, 1979, because that's, at least according to Spotify, your most popular song, I guess the most popular thing you've been involved with. We're going to get pretty quickly to the new album, but can we say a little bit about the journey between to sort of sum up the a couple albums with the pop group, and then you went solo, you had the Mafia, sort of a solo project, and then a bunch of solo albums, and now you're collaborating. Is that... That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and, and again, being a little bit obtuse, the funny thing is that making music is not the be-all and end-all of... I do it without thinking about it. So it's not important to me if you if you can understand what I'm saying. And I, I try and really maintain my naivety and I don't really study it too much. So what I'm really pleased about, it's not a question of plugging this new record, but the process of doing these weird collaborations and stepping outside of my comfort zone, which, although it's really weird to most people, I can do in the bath, right? Like my normal albums, collaborating with these totally out there people, even for me, like KK Null and Pansonic and Ye Gods, was a real jump. I, I jumped off the edge. For me, it was like I was, you know, those Roger Dean covers, those Yes covers, when they have like the edge of a sort of cliff and then you become an amorphous. I mean, it's just so weird. And I don't know where it's going. I don't know where I'm swimming. I don't even know which matrix I'm in at the moment. The world is under some sort of voodoo spell anyway at the moment. So I'm just adding to the chaos. (laughs) Yeah, I had a feeling that your whole approach to composition and and what you physically do is going to be kind of unique among my guests. Can you say a little bit about, before we hear it, Rage of Angels, that's the opening track from the new album, versus... The way to make a record with Front 242 is you go back through the time tunnel to a club in in Brussels called Ancien Belgique, right? Way, way back in the post-punk times where everybody wore grey and nobody smiled, (laughs) apart from the bloke from Echo and the Bunnymen. Then, suddenly, I came across these people dressed as secret agents that virtually they look like Arnie from Terminator in full combat gear. And I thought, these guys look quite interesting for a pop band. And the the guys made such shocking modern music at the time. If There was an album they did called Tyranny For You, which, you know, the graphics, the whole idea of having like Front 242 as a sort of brand logo, like my friend Keith Levine thought for Peel. It's Anything that challenges stereotypes in, in any any part of life, I think, should be championed. And their whole attitude to the thing on stage, they kind of crept around, like I'm saying, like special forces people. And the music, if it wasn't for Front 242, when I have conversations with people like Carl Craig and other techno guys, if it wasn't for Front 242, there would be no underground resistance, there'd be no Detroit techno. Absolutely as important to electronic music, if not all music, as Man Ray is to photography, if you ask me. And I'm honoured to be allowed even to speak to them, not even allowed to work with them, because behind all this, I'm a fanboy, mate. Do you know what I mean? And I can't believe that I get to work with some of these people. I don't analyse my position or who I am or what I do. I just continued my life in the middle of nowhere. Bring it, bring it, bring it back!
So let me just give you an extreme scenario of collaboration and you can tell me how different it is from this. The person who is who will be editing our interview right now, Tyler Hislop, is a prolific hip-hop artist. And to collaborate with him once, I just recorded like a little me singing some little ditties into my phone. Like just some phrases, sent it to him, and he made a song out of it. I could see... This song we just heard, how far from it? Did you just record your vocals and then they created the soundscape or is it a lot a lot more back and forth? All of these songs have got a slightly different journey. The essence of this song was one of my key songwriters, Andy Spaceland, who kind of runs Massive Attack's old studio in Bristol. And he was in this band called Alpha who were on Massive, my friend's label. He doesn't argue and I don't argue with him and we accept each other's contributions and he's very good at melodies and adding stuff and listening and going backwards and forwards. So me and him actually, there's a more orchestral version, orchestral, <laughs> there's a, a more kind of wall of soundy, kind of on you sounding version of, of Range of Angels which I wanted Front 242 to strip down and put their own kind of motoric thing against on that specific track. Were you clear on, I mean, the sort of soundscapes they create? I've interviewed electronic musicians as just one guy doing that stuff. Do you have any idea how they even shove five people in there? Does it like, you know, Patrick, 
and you might have gotten the I framework? Because people I know have been close to them over the years and we've mixed in similar circles. I hear different stories as to the dynamics. I look at these things like gangs, but I'm not one to comment on other people's gang culture, if you like, right? So with this album, with Verses, I really try to tie my arm down to become more ambidextrous mentally, try to tie down my pineal gland, if you like, so the other people could run wild. One thing I can do is I can encourage people to create chaos magic, if you like. I can put a fire under them so they jump about like on a hot plate, like a bear on a hot plate. You know, especially in the studio with people like Dennis Bevel and Adrian Sherwood, we have, you know, just in the way with the humor and messing around and maybe a few drinks, suddenly somebody's doing something half naked they never thought they'd do. Not that there's a plan to it, but what happens is I try and let the fireworks go off and then work out what I'm going to do with that later on. Okay, so is the final mixing? It depends on each process. Well, with this this song in particular. This song in particular, there was a little bit of backwards and forward, but I was Mm -hmm. more than happy with what they did straight away. Okay, so just for instance, the theme, boom, 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 boom. Like, was that something that was in your head to start with, or was that... It's them ripping off something from the original song. All right, tell me about the relation of the original song. I was not aware that this was a remake of something. So It's not a remake. Oh, the orchestral version is what and you were me, saying. It's okay. like there was a thing called Xerox art, right? And mm-hmm. montage and collaging, right? The only way I can explain it, nothing for me is ever really finished. There's always another, Brian Geisen called it the process, right? Mm-hmm. There's always another, there's a scene in Chucky or Toy Story, I think, when they put the head of a doll on the kind of ultimatum spider's body, right? And then Action Man would appear with like a a fish's leg. So I go back and recut and edit and cut up stuff in a kind of Burroughs tradition of stuff I did when I was 11 or 12. So everything, all in the end is harvest. Everything is up for grabs. Nothing is a finished thing. And there's a process. And then I try and decondition. It's not normal, my friend. Sorry. Are you adding new technologies to this all the time such that obviously your old stuff is analog? I am AI bot. I was just reading earlier on about this AI bot that recites this like koan. It makes up new prayers as it goes along. So for instance, this big thing at the beginning. Bring it, bring it, bring it back. That repeats and repeats and it slows down gradually and there's this throbbing thing and there like it sounds like you're twisting knobs toward the end of that for sure. It does not sound like it, you know something that was sculpted on it with a mouse on a screen. <laughs> Yes, totally. I grew up, we learned from Lee Perry, I'm a desk man. Mm-hmm. And loads of the stuff that we've done over the years that people say is invented this genre or that genre or be groundbreaking, which, which I don't really care about. It was all done with knobs, overloading EQ, panning in really weird ways, which now we've done our first ever spatial mix, which for me is like mind-blowing. When I first went to IMAX, it just really, I just thought this is really good for the sort of mad kind of dub things that we do. I overload stuff, put it on cassette, edit with a double cassette machine tum sometimes, put it back through a car engine. Do you know what I mean? Anything mm-hmm. that takes my fancy. And then suddenly you decide it's done, even if it's not done, even if you want to fiddle about with it, because you, you have to do something. You've got to go to the shops. You try and break the narrative of your own... It's really weird. And sometimes the things which are kind of half finished, which you think you were going to finesse further, but you decide on the spur of the moment against your own intuition, counterintuitive, is the stuff that has the biggest effect. And when you say something about Beyond Good and Evil was the biggest thing on Spotify, well, fair enough. But there's a bigger thing. There's this Crookers, this huge Italian kind of dance crew, did a kind of recut of We're All Prostitutes. And that is a million, that's a lot bigger. Again, it's kind of like the process of what I do. You know, it's like Burroughs, Bowie took stuff from Burroughs. You take stuff. For me, it's like that old chemical snake that's eating its own tail. And now I'm actually feeding off the people that supposedly I influenced, which is quite interesting. Well, let me ask you about a couple more details where some of these sounds came from, that you've got that main groove that I talked about, but then you've got... This, what I wrote, called The Mysterious Groove. The Way of the Mysterious Groove. So it's just basically a a minor key version of what you do. Yeah, yeah. Again, so if the original thing was lifted from a a 30-year-old tape... (laughs) 
This is obviously a variation off that. So is this created... It's a ghost of a ghost, yeah. Brian Eno worked on these deck of cards called the Oblique Strategies, which is a kind of ice ching... It's kind of like a chance procedure, right? And I've got this idea that dubbing is the music of chance. When you suddenly cut everything out or go to a cliff edge or turn something off, the key thing, something else appears. But you've got to break your own conditioning. All I can explain is the sort of techniques that I use on my own brain and I encourage other people to use or, or I'm tempted towards people that I think maybe do something not necessarily similar, but are counterintuitive too, if you like. Somebody was telling me about Google's, have you heard of, they're called white mice? No. There used to be this thing called the Brandt Institute, which was basically futurologists. I think they're employed by Google Labs or something, right? They try and get people who are not conditioned or not studied in the way the technology is meant to be developing. So they suddenly come up with a mad new lateral idea without being pulled down the wrong tunnel or the, or the wrong rabbit hole. They're not pulled along by a wrong narrative, if you like. Mm -hmm. So this whole using chance to get out of your own way and get out of your own patterns, like I completely understand that when I'm working on my own, I'll admit that, you know, this is probably 20 years ago now, but I went over to some new potential collaborator's house and we started working together. And I kind of wanted to see what was just my native style plus his native style. And he suggested, not that far in, like, let's do some sort of random thing. Let's do the Eno trick. And I felt like, no, we haven't explored what our DNA is just smashed together to have a chance thing on top of that that would just not make it clear actually what... But you're saying that you use this with other people to get unexpected things out of them and that it sort of multiplies the complexity in an interesting way. I don't know if it's complexity. I don't know. I don't think... The interest, let's say. We're going to get into really philosophical ground. That's great. <laughs> I can't do epistemology on your words. You know, <laughs> it's like the epistemology of the word magic and religion. You know, that it's the same. I don't know. Sure. I like not knowing. One of the lyrics is the end of certainty. These kind of superimposed certainties of these kind of digital bars and this kind of matrix, I find very, very scary. And people will argue you down about something they know nothing about. They have to believe in something. So clearly you have political views and they do come out in the lyrics. And I know before we started recording, you said these lyrics, they're not straightforward political statements. There's a lot chance as we were just talking, it goes into them. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure out between... The... I've just done this art exhibition called The Autopsy of a Myth. Mm -hmm. I could get philosophical about that. I actually just recorded a philosophy episode on putting myths together. And, and while taking the... I don't find taking the surface content of the myth and analyzing that, I don't find that that useful. But sort of going underneath of like, why do people make myths and what is this serving culturally? Like that is... Totally fruitful. So it's just a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That if we don't want to, if we don't necessarily want to uh, analyze the specific words that came out of your mouth, it might be more what your process is in emitting these. Maybe. Do I look like I need analysis? Do I, do I look like? <laughs> well, your camera's off, so I can't tell you. I'm, I'm <laughs> sitting here in a, in a furry cosplay outfit. Yeah. Are you saying I'm mad? <laughs> I'm not crazy. It's the clown. One thing I did not mention in the little brief overview at the beginning of your career is that. The pop group reformed, at least some of you. So you've got a couple albums. This first one, Citizen Zombie 2015, I picked Age of Miracles off the end because it seemed like quite a different song from the first one. You know, it almost, it has this very nice little piano thing. And it's got that disco-ish rhythm section that made something like She Is Beyond Good and Evil so accessible, even for, I would assume, people that might not otherwise like art rock or noise, you know, avant-garde stuff. But like, you know, you put a good beat under that. We thought we were making pop music. It's just we couldn't play. And I was watching <laughs> with the second bass player. We were watching, we put out this album called For How Much Longer Do We Tolerate Mass Murder? And, and Don Letts had made some film of us playing at this sort of political benefit festival thing, right? And we watched it because we'd never seen it because we were going to use it to go with the track. We just looked at each other and said, we're playing different songs at the same time. And we're all just, we're just playing with ourselves, no pun intended. And then getting faster to see, to try and get to the end, like a bunch of like greyhounds. <laughs> and when we were kids, the editor of Melody Maker came over and said that he thought we sounded like Charlie Parker or something. And I could not understand what was, I, I said to Gareth, I said, I think we sound like donkeys. 
It means there is a sax in there and it is doing mysterious things. <laughs> I think that's all that means. I had not heard your old pop group stuff, you know, before prepping for this and listening through why the first time. It was bewildering to me. I, I mean, I got the idea that it was have a disco beat and put avant-garde stuff over it. That's as far as I got. But you you're know, on the corner <laughs> by Miles Davis, that we listened to that a lot. And we grew up in a town where there were a lot of funk clubs and reggae. That's what we, yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't even say avant-garde, it's freeform. Wasn't, there wasn't a lot of logic to it then. The song I picked for this one, Age of Miracles, off Citizen Zombie, is not completely unrestrained like some of that old stuff. Can you say a little bit about the song before we hear it, and then we'll talk in more detail? I think Age of Miracles is very pertinent to play, especially this week, because I was just reading something about the planets aligning. I really, I pray people were, a couple of weeks ago, people were really quoting something that happened, that whatever is meant to have happened at Fatima. I pray that this is the Age of Miracles. I think we need miracles more than we ever have. And the interesting thing about that track and that album was that there was such goodwill towards the pop group. Basically, we got this phone call from Matt Groening, mm. the guy behind The Simpsons. He was curating a festival, an all-tomorrow's party, and he wanted Iggy to reform the Stooges, which was weird because that's how I met Mike Watts when he was playing with the Stooges and he got to work on this record. And he wanted me to reform the pop group. And, you know, we were always friends because we come from a small town and you can't really ignore people, you know. We're from the same gang of kids from football and youth clubs and stuff. You know, you, the town's too small to, <laughs> to cross the road and we know each other's families and stuff. So, you know, we would have been friends without having a being in a... You know, the band isn't the most important part. But the first thing that all of us said was it wouldn't be the pop group unless we did something new. Uh, but something that just whatever we wanted to do that week, unrelated to any shackles of the pop group or something. And suddenly we were working with one of the biggest producers in the world who's, who said we were a big influence on him, Paul Epworth. And that's a big song. If you listen to it, and, you know, it was recorded in the U2 were working in the studio the same week. I mean, it's a big song. And Paul is an incredible guy. And it's just, we were working on Pink Floyd's old desk. I mean, it's mad. That's the crazy thing. One minute you're doing something like that. And the next minute you're in a tiny little eight track with like an underground punk crew.
I didn't ask you with the first song. I'll ask you about both these. Your choice of vocal effect. This is a song that you could have kind of done it in a, a straightforwardly crooning manner. And, uh, it but, is crooning. To, oi. <laughs> for you, it's crooning. Yes. Okay. But it's still. I like. I like French chansonniers like Leo Ferre, Early Brel. For some reason, I like that. What's it? Shellac. Sort of crackly, sort of shellacky sound because that's the sort of stuff that gives me a tingle. Or I've got old tapes of Samuel Beckett talking. And one of the things is, is we used to get sound system tapes from Jamaica when we were kids, which would like five generations. People would copy and copy and copy and another copy. Yard tapes, we called them. So you mentioned that, yeah, with the first song. So is that some of what explains not the way you're singing, but just the how it is recorded? We used to call it a CNN effect, right? If something sounds like it's on a sort of dirty microphone in a war zone, it gives it a sort of Again, it's this cut and paste kind of like documentary filmmaker sort of technique. There was an amazing guy called Joe Meek in England in the 60s, this really experimental producer, but he worked with big pop people as well, like Tom Jones and very early David Bowie. And he'd have like mental techniques of putting a microphone behind a toilet and, you know, just messing around with stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. I grew up in that tradition. I used to go to this thing called the London Musicians Collective, where there'd be, you know, a guy called Steve Beresford would be experimenting with children's toys. Per Ubu, who we toured with when we were at school, they, Dave Thomas used to just do crazy stuff. At this point, is it a matter of, I mean, it's easy to do digitally. Like, you don't have to put a, something behind in a toilet. Those faux ant farm, no, it's not. It's not just a matter of rolling off the treble, rolling off the bass, getting a very mid-range, you know. For me, it's the emotion and it's the peak. I mean, some of these things, I've done 87 edits. Wow, okay. You know, it's processing. It's like Jamie Reed did or something. You get a picture of like, and then you'd work on the dot matrix and then you'd overlay it, then you'd throw paint at it. Yeah, without sitting behind you and watching you. <laughs> and there's a lot of humor in it. You know, I kind of take the piss out of it. Well, I really like on this one that it's you have this choir. Is the choir all you just overdubbed a bunch of times? There's anybody that was around. I think a friend, painter, girl, friend of mine from Bristol popped in. Anybody that was around, people from the kitchen down the road, underneath Paul's studio where there's there was this place where they used to make these children's. We were so shocked when we arrived because we grew up watching this thing called Tales of the Riverbank hamsters and badgers and little conicals and make and push them around these kind of weird little canals they made in a studio and it was called it was in the same place that paul had bought the studio from the guy from the arrhythmic mental of anybody that's around i'll get to shout or sing you know and sometimes you want that kind of football crowd effect but this is the football crowd not like let's try to capture that it's a crowd it's you're still doing the kind of radical processing on the group voice so that it it sounds different than your own voice and i like the way that you let that be exposed at the end where you sort of took out the lead and have the choir singing it's continue doing the chorus but it's a very you know funky effect and then of course the layers of delay like do you just like to add delay and then add more delay and add delay through something where you can manually twist the knob while you're doing it. Like, that's what it sounds like. The layers of echo on both these songs are pretty extreme. I have learned from what we call the box is back in the day, apart from if you had like an automated desk, we'd have to try and do everything in, in one take, if you like, the final mixes. And then we'd do like 20 or 30 takes. Then I'd manipulate or edit down and actually make song structures like Tio Masiro did with Miles and On the Corner into something else. If something's really taken off, I'm going to say, well, we're going to use that as a chorus. But what me and Adrian have learned is that you can kind of really finesse, you can build up like a drum mix and then that's steady. You can make like a really heavy sort of dubby sort of Phil Spector three-dimensional sort of drum mix and then you can finesse on the top so you haven't got to be worrying about all the different buses so in just getting this groove started i mean is this were you all in a room the drummer came over the, the original pop group drummer who played for public image came across and who was doing bass on this one was that dan yet or was that second the second bass player who joined us for how much longer after simon left okay Let's stop and do our sponsor messages. Thank you so much to Nebia by Moen, who has paid me to laud its Quattro Showerhead. Nebia is backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. The Nebia by Moen Showerhead is designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. They spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water. The Quattro offers four separate spray modes, allowing you to confuse your skin as you shower. 
I'll say I exclusively recently have been using the soft spray that is Nebbia's signature spa-like feeling. It atomizes the water coming out of your shower, heating up the environment of your shower, making it feel like a spa. But you can also use the hard spray modes or angel hair, 150 streams of water for a calming and soothing sensation that provides surprisingly high pressure, right? The innovative thing about all these kinds of showers here that Nebbia puts out is they're engineered to feel like they have very high water pressure, but yet they save, they save 40 to 50% of water compared to a traditional shower. The Quattro is super easy to install. Just unscrew the old one, screw in the new one. It's like changing a light bulb takes no more than three minutes. And they've also got other awesome sustainable bathroom accessories, such as their new quick dry earth mat, shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, bath mats, and more. Nebbia by Mo and Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebbia.com. And Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Again, go to Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A.com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code N-E-M. There is a service. It is called Masterclass. You may have heard me tell you about it. It is where you learn from the world's best minds. Anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. While you can listen to David Sedaris talk about storytelling and humor. Sarah Blakely talk about self-made entrepreneurship. Cornel West talk about philosophy. There are cooking classes, business classes, all sorts of creative stuff. You can learn hostage negotiation, which might come in handy on one of your tours, for instance. I looked this time at Steve Martin Teaches Comedy. Steve Martin, as you probably know, is also a musician. The things he has to say about performance often cross different types of performance and certainly contributes to putting lyrics together, coming up with a stage persona. Steve talks about how to gather inspiration from things all around you, how to find your unique voice, how to deliver things with subtlety, with timing, with physicality, how to craft your act into something truly stage-worthy. These are skills that carry over, apart from him just being a fascinating guy and his work being awesome. That is just one of more than 100 classes, including over a dozen music classes, shot in beautiful high-quality video, though if you're like me, maybe you'll just listen to it like a podcast. They come with downloadable supplemental materials. There's a community that you can reach out to. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash N-E-M now. That's masterclass.com slash N-E-M for 15% off Masterclass. I assume then it's a groove first. And do you have a big notebook of lyrics that you're potentially bringing to the table? How much refining goes into these lyrics? What I'm trying to say is the most important thing in my life, Right. And even if just the finessing, like one line, like I finished it the other day, really, really sums up something to me that's been buzzing around in my head for about 20, 30 years, right? And like I'm saying, these little kind of haikus are like gold dust to me. I mean, I've got something at the moment about the severed man, time hunter. You know, it's just like these little kind of scraps are my, then it's nutrients for my soul. Any particular thoughts about the... Right. It's declaring this is the age of miracles in this one. But clearly it is. Please tell me. I, I wish I wish it was the age of miracles. Something it's a more mournful. Beyond good and evil and these other ideas. I was talking to somebody the other day. It's this yearning, which I think they call it the romantics or something in, in the German romanticism. Or so. There's this yearning, which I call unconditional love, which leads to idealism. Right. So there's a yearning for a better world, if you like. But it's the same kind of yearning for a lost love. That is part of the DNA of this song right from the beginning, from that piano riff. I mean, who actually is playing the keyboard in this? Or is that a sample of something? And the sax when it when it is necessary, but it seems like it is not. Through treatments. I mean, we all, we all really loved Eddie Harris when you put sax through wah-wahs and stuff, you know. And Dan used to play guitar with with a with a dildo for the slide. <laughs> okay, let me just play one little bit from here. This is uh, three minutes in. It's a backward children's wordy thing, I think. We have these things that you whirl, these tubes you whirl around. Oh, I see. All right. 
Yes. Well, let's. Uh, there's some definite synth on what we're about to hear. Liberty City by Mark Stewart and the Mafia from Learning to Cope with Cowardice, 1983. It's like a Yamaha DX7. Oh, that this initial sort of Alfred Hitchcock pizzicato string thing. <laughs> the keyboard guy, there's a guy called Nick Pletus, right, who was in a band called Rugulator, who just before punk, they, there was a thing that they later called pub rock, right, which when we were 14, 15, there'd be bands like Dr. Feelgood, Eddie and the Hot Rods, and Rugulator. And basically, they were playing like old British 60s, dirty R&B, like Yardbird songs, Pretty Things songs. But it was really rough compared to the kind of prog rock, which had just happened before. And to us young people, most of the people that became punks were into this sort of dirty pub rock stuff just before punk. And there was a guy called Wilco Johnson who kind of ran around with his guitar like a machine gun. It was really influential to a lot of the people who went to form punk bands. So to actually play with Nick and, and the sax player is a guy called Deadly Headley, who's one of the most legendary Jamaican instrumentalists. And he went to this, he comes from this place called Alpha Boys School, which I think was run by a religious order, but they take like homeless street kids and teach them instruments and house them, right? And the Lee Perry track that we put out, the first track from the album, Alpha, the collaboration with Lee Perry, we gave the first wave of money to Alpha Boys School. But so many amazing Jamaican musicians went to Alpha Boys School. And deadly sax playing on Liberty City is, I think, is beautiful. Welcome to Liberty City. What they're doing Control units are laid out geometrically Inside the patients suck on the glass teats of their rendering Struggling to pay the rent, the main worries, job security. The busier you are, the less you see. I'll find a key and try to get out of my dormitory. My so-called friends. One, the internally well-meaning but broken one I'll take a walk into the conquered city
and then we can afford a little luxury. That initial DX7, I like to think of the, your arrangements as there's sort of a cast of characters, this one in particular, that things that just come in and maybe wave around and maybe they go away, but a lot of them will keep coming back. So it's the same, like the sax pattern, which strangely has like him doing a riff on the right speaker, but then a more a backing riff on the left speaker, also sax. That same pattern comes in several times. It's like a weird sort of vignette of like a, you know, there's this Jean Genet film. You know, it's like, for me, I want to like conjure up being on the dock side of Hamburg in the 1920s or something. I use sounds, you know, I did this song called Veneer of Democracy with there's dogs howling and helicopter noises. And I'm really getting into sort of, I don't even want to call it soundtrack, but working with audio visual stuff. And working with film directors, I'm really into this idea. What I really, really want to do is I want to dub a film. I want to use like a car chase, like the sound of the engine starting as part of the rhythm of the song and feed the things into the music and the music feeds back. So the things are actually inherently connected. So using this to create a film score or taking an existing film and using that as raw material. I'm working with quite a lot of film people at the moment, but my dream is to start something from the minute go. So the sound design, if you like, is not like a bolt-on that we think... Imagine it like Broken Arrow by John Woo when there's like the split screens and there's an explosion going on different screens, like in Chelsea Girls, across your view, right? In my head, I'm thinking I can use that explosion sound as the bass drum, if you like, in the rhythm. So the rhythm, so it's really, to use a crappy word, immersive. But the things actually work together. So the drip of the tap dubs out into the voice. You see what I'm saying? Yes, yes. And I can see how something like what you're describing is right in Liberty City, right? You're setting up this environment. You've got some sounds of people talking. You have all these characters. I guess the specific thing that I... So you start with this DX7, this what I called an Alfred Hitchcock string pizzicato thing. But then that, actually that character goes goes away. Like, do you remember? I, I know this was a long time ago. It's not like it comes back at the end when you're talking about a man with a gun. There's another filmmaker called Chris Marker, right? There's this film called Sunless, which has always been a huge influence on me, or a Tarkovsky film, right? We're driving through Liberty City. The control units are laid out geometrically inside the patient's suck on the glass teats of their rented TV. So I'm using the sounds as well as musically. I'm using them as ambience for the vignettes of the image I'm trying to create, if you like. It's filmic. Again, thinking about you know how vocals are normally processed, you've got, I think the first time, actually, let me find this spot. first time you say welcome to liberty city or the when it comes back 
after uh, How to Awaken from the Comforts of Slavery, one by one, two by two, they all join the debris. And there's, I think maybe this is what you're talking about, of using the EQ to m- max out something. that Or to change. Now they, they talk about the spatial field. You have a joystick and you can move around. I don't know if you've come across art, Genesis from Throbbing Gristle played me an artificial head once. You put on these headphones and it sounded like somebody was walking on gravel, but it sounded like they were moving around in your in your head. So sometimes, like you were saying with the sax or something, we move the thing. So instead of you physically moving, it feels like the environment is opening up or closing the depth of field. I mean, I've always called it spatials anyway. And when this idea of spatial sound came out, it was like, you know, I've always talked about spatial. It's like you want to throw the ball of the snare down the hallway and let it bounce. I got to say, I used a lot more stereo effects when I had to do mixes through an analog mixer and it became a performance that you have to like... The, yeah, yeah the, the, it's the... too flat on a screen. It's too flat. And there, when you see it in long ways going up from you, when suddenly it's horizontal in a box, it's like trying to play football with your nose. <laughs> Even though now we have so much more control and can make the mix the same every time in digitally, but it's still, it's less fun anyway. I recall talking to some other fellow that would put together these things with a lot of sense in the early 80s and like the whole band would gather around the mixing board so because, you know. Yeah, we did that with the pop group, yeah. We'd all be padding with Dennis before when we did why we'd all have it and suddenly somebody would cut the bass in, you know, often after a few drinks and it turned into, people didn't realize that whole punk thing of like somebody coming up with you with the guitar is just like sort of football hooligans, like threatening getting in people's faces when you're in a pub, you know. Yeah, I also sort of heard these stories about Sid Barrett going into the mixing and just making a pretty design with the knobs as if not paying attention to actually what they're controlling, That introducing that randomness that way. I like the idea, Steiner's ideas, it's synesthesia, sound and, col- sound and colors. I know that the music create visions and is created by visions. You know, it's that whole sort of Dogon. So anyway. So you're pretty clearly, you know, as a composer, kind of a director, right? You're directing the special effects. You're doing the final mix. Yeah, I think of the best, especially stuntmen or special effects people. You know, if I hear like a trap beat, I'll find mm-hmm. that I think I want to use in my palette, not as a trap rhythm or cumbia beat or something, a new sound that I want to use for my own devices. I'll go straight to the source. Like back in the day when we first came across hip hop, I found Keith LeBlanc, Doug Wimbish, Skip McDonald, you know, and started perverting their <laughs> style into something else. Again, with his verses, when Aphex Twin turned me on to Ye Gods, I just thought this stuff is dense. You know, it's one for the inmates. I can. I was banging my head to his shit within seconds. The guy is on it. I'll track somebody down and say, can I version one of your rhythms? It's, we used to do it with reggae, used to do it with hip-hop. And coming from that sort of, D, you know, all my mates from Massive Eternal, it was that DJ culture, sound system culture. You want the latest beat, the latest rhythm, the latest break. And I love scratch DJ battles. So, you know, there's these guys called the Invisible Scratch Pickles. I just did something with um, Jack Dangers from Meat Beat Manifesto. And what really got me excited about his stuff what his work, but even more than what he did with the Matrix and, you know, the soundtrack work, was he really helped get these scratch, San Francisco scratch DJ battles onto record. And those records are mad. They're quite difficult to get hold of. But if you see, if you track down, I mean, there's there's videos of scratch battles. Cut Chemist, the Invisible Scratch Pickles. It is brilliant. It's like music concrete you can break dance to. So how did you get into this in the first place? Like, was there an instrument you started on before you migrated off to working with your voice and your mind and your your equipment? We had some children's records. My mom and dad brought me back a postcard, which was a record. Like, it had some cellophane on the front, and it was printed. I think it was Purple People Eater or something, right? And you got, like, a children's record player, like a little plastic record player, right? But what I remember is the speaker fell out, and we'd always have these little metal bins to put paper in in your bedrooms right mine had like prehistoric paintings on it from that famous cave painting or whatever they just you know your schoolwork or whatever or magazines you just often just throw them across from your bed into the bin this little bin right and somehow the speaker and i didn't really understand what magnetism was but it magnetically connected to the back of this bin <laughs> and the bin started rattling and adding another texture to the thing and later on, when I went to reggae sound systems and stuff, it was that same sort of bass bin rattle that I've always sort of loved. 
Yeah, so it sounds like you're a mad scientist from the start. That it's not this, you know, that you started taking piano lessons and discovered the avant-garde or something like. No, it was, I, it was, I, I don't think I was ever normal. I don't think anybody, anybody in my family has been normal for quite a few generations. Well, let's conclude by introducing the final thing. I wanted another collaboration from the new album, Cast No Shadow, Leather Strip Mix by Mark Stewart, Stephen Molander, and Eric Random. Again, from Versus 2022. That's a lot of names. Is Leather Strip? What What does that even mean? Is that a separate entity who did the mixing? Yeah, he, or is... he's the like front of 242. He did the final mix. Mm -hmm. Me and Eric wrote the song with Mally from Cabaret Voltaire. And I was fiddling about and fiddling about and fiddling about, trying to get my friend who went with New Order to do different mixes and different mixes. Then Scott Crow, who put out this album from Emergency Hearts, kept on going on about Leather Strip. Right, that his mixing was brilliant, and there's all there was this other guy, Clan of Zymox, right? And I was just listening to some of these things, and they were getting sonics that I again I didn't understand, sort of density in the sort of sonics, and they were being their stuff is being played out. There's this weird scene developing in in America, which last year was called Witch House, but there's clubs in every major city which is playing what they call post punk. But it's kind of new stuff mixed in with this kind of really new kind of electronic stuff. A friend of mine, Tech Speak, is a DJ at some of these events, right? But they also play my stuff, old stuff of mine, Clan of Zymox, Leather Strip is really big. But the whole evening is really dense. Front 242, Frontline Assembly, Early Ministry, Consolidated. You know, it's a really, and it's like 16, 17, 18 year old kids like doing like mad dancing in weird sort of rubbery wear to foot with a brilliant sound systems to what I think is quite out there music. So yeah, this bunch of, you know, how did, how did this, like, when would you decide, I don't want to do this mix myself for a song like this. I, I need to send this out or were there, are there multiple versions of all these that you did? I just kept on going and going and going. And Scott said, I want to get leather strapped to have a go at it. Okay for the clubs because we're getting a lot of club play on these tracks and i decided that that mix is better than any of the mixes we did well and maybe you can help me understand so this is a seven and a half minute mix and of course in a normal sort of rock and roll setting somebody else doing a mix means like well they're gonna add some different effects to the vocal and the guitar is gonna be louder so, some it doesn't make it four minutes longer like how long was this before used to back in the day you'd get these kind of mega mixes and in the early days of electro and stuff you get you get bonus beats extended mixes in the 80s I used to love extended mixes you'd buy a 12 inch and it would go into like a breakdown the drums would break down then the voice would come back in again you know recording no new material just taking the stuff and cutting and pasting well, it depends and depends on who's doing it depends on who's doing the stuff who's doing what i mean we knew this guy george jukos or something right who used to work with the latin rascals with arthur baker when he was working with new order right and this guy they used to service like larry levan at paradise garage and stuff right and they wanted specific sort of bpms but this guy would cut the tape down the middle and have the stereo pair running against each other one way or another Disco edits. Sure. Yeah, I guess as long as it's still synced and there's still a beat from both sides. <laughs> what I got into on, the, on this leather strip version was the kind of repetition. Because one of the key things that I, I'm not very good at from classic electronic music or even classic crap rock like Noi or Kraftwerk or something is the kind of hypnotic use of repetition. And stopping yourself from putting anything else in it. Just keep it on the one. I thought I heard that on quite a bit of your eponymous, your self-titled album from the 87 or whatever that was. That seemed remarkably stark in some places like that. You were investigating exactly that hypnotic repetition thing. Somebody was saying the other day that they like the space between the notes. And the whole point, I think, of the techniques, I mean, they call it dub, but it's what I do isn't really like dub. But what I learned, or what I really liked from those Jamaican pre's I always used to buy when I was a kid and I still buy, is the way some is just spooked out to a skeletal sort of just the pulse or the bass line or the, and then the drums come back in like thunder. You know, it's just, it's crazy. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. This is a whole new area. This kind of collaboration and this way of mixing and this whole, yeah, I, I've interviewed some techno folks before, but this is a, a whole new dimension here. So I really, really fun immersing myself in your stuff for the, the last couple weeks. Thank you. All right, here it is. Cast No Shadow.
Thanks so much to Mark, a really entertaining interview. He was very upfront with the fact that he was not going to decipher his lyrics. And come to think of it, I don't know if we got a lot of really clear, specific information about how particular sounds were put together, but just hearing his whole point of view on how to make music, I found really fascinating. Remember, you can hear more about him at markstuartmusic.com. Learn more about this podcast. Go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed through one of the links there. You can also, uh, there's a link there to support the show and or to leave a nice rating and review, which would be very nice. My next interview is with Queen Esther, a smooth Americana slash jazz slash theater vocalist. And then I also just talked yesterday to a fellow named Drew Grow, a Portland musician with some excellent tunes, very interesting sonic palette. I wanted to announce I have put yet another one of my old albums. This one's called Black Jelly Beans and Smokes up on my Bandcamp page. That's marklint.bandcamp.com. That is probably the goofiest record I've ever recorded from 1997, but it's really mostly stuff I recorded in college just goofing around. Pretty entertaining. I also have a book that has gone on pre-sale. It is called The Philosophy for Teens. You can just go look that up on Amazon if you want. If you have a teen that is interested in philosophy. All right. I hope you're all doing well. Keeping creative, seeing the world through an artistic lens, perhaps. In other words, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Nintenmeyer signing off. <laughs>